remain standing and pray with me, please. Lord, as your servant John prayed, God, may I decrease, Jesus, may you now increase. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I grew up as a kid, um, I've actually kind of privileged in a way. My parents uh, had a boat. And uh, we would go to the lake just about every Saturday during the summer. And it was my duty most of the time to get our boat and stuff ready. If mom and dad were going to take us and if they were going to uh, uh, foot the money for the whole deal and we were going to get involved, that was our job as uh, growing up was to get the boat ready. And so the, we would get the boat ready and then we would venture out to the lake for, for summer fun and the water ski and all that good fun stuff that people do on the lake. But when we got there, um, in the midst of all the fun and the excitement, there were actually a number of checks. They probably weren't always too much fun. Uh, you know, we were kind of anxious. We wanted to get the boat in the water and get going. But there were a number of checks that my dad always insisted that we perform before launching the boat. First thing we had to do was get the straps that held the boat to the trailer. We had to take those undone. We had to get out life vests for every single person who was going to be on board. The engine had to be unlocked from its secured position. Fuel line had to be primed. Oil levels had to be checked. We had to roll through the hydraulic steering system to make sure that it was okay. And then go through all the electrical systems on the boat. And then most importantly, there's a plug. If any of you have ever been in a boat, there's a plug that goes in the back of the boat. It had to be inserted in the rear transom drain hole on, or a rear uh, transom drain on the hull of the boat to keep her from filling up with water. And as some people would think that's a bit overzealous, but I mean, it just kind of became a thing. It'd be between me, my dad, and my brother always asking each other, did you put the plug in the boat? Did you put the plug in the boat? Did you put the plug in the boat? Just to make sure that the plug, yes, was in the boat. And so people would think, well, that's actually a bit overzealous, perhaps. But because of some things we saw happen on the water and because of some occurrences that we knew had happened as friends that were boating, you know, we learned that it was much better to check this stuff out before going out into the water. Because people get stranded on the lake because of dead batteries and weak batteries. Steering system failure at high speed can actually result in you losing control and hurting everyone on board. And friends, you can actually sink a boat. One of my dad's friends did this if someone didn't put the little plug in the back. And what actually, and and, and so you got to go through all these checks because not checking these important matters on the boat can actually spoil what would otherwise be a great day at the lake. Or it could put everyone on board at risk. It could result in injury, death, or worse, even drowning. Well, in a similar fashion, to ensure that God's people and his church have good leaders and to make sure that the church is not put at risk or put in harm's way, St. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 at Kirby read a minute ago. He, he wrote these things to see to it that the church in Ephesus of that day was running character and virtue qualification checks, if you will, on those coming into leadership in the church. Now, friends, as many of you know, this sermon series over the past couple weeks from 1 Timothy has been labeled Keeping Christianity Weird. 
And friends, the, the more I look around and the more I, 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 I read and the further I study and the things I see in the culture, listen, running checks on character qualifications of potential leaders in the church is weird. And it's a weird thing to do in our culture. First, it's weird in our culture for several reasons. I'll just name a few. Number one, we live in a society that has reduced all virtues, virtues that we used to, that, that were named a long time ago, virtues like prudence, courage, self-control, justice, humility. We've reduced all those to one virtue only, and only one virtue, and that is to be a kind and good person. In other words, as long as someone is a kind and good person, and they're good by our definition of what is good, and they don't do anything or say anything to offend or challenge our pleasure and our comfort and our contentment in life, well, really, that's about as far as our concerns really go when it comes to the character of other people. But secondly, character qualifications seem weird to our culture because ours today has become a society that really wants to make hypocrisy impossible. In fact, hypocrisy is a really bad word. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite, right? I mean, hypocrite's the worst thing a Christian can be labeled as. So how do we avoid being hypocrites? Well, it's when we get slack in the rules. It's when we begin changing, redefining them, or just doing away with them altogether. I mean, think about it. If there are no rules, if there are no standards, <laughs> I can't be a hypocrite. I win. Or it's like one friend of mine when I was growing up in high school used to say all the time. He used to go around quoting this, and I don't really know why, but it's just something that roamed off, rolled off of his tongue all the time. He said, you know, when all else fails, lower your standards. But secondly, running checks on the character qualifications of church leaders is sometimes even weird in the church. We hear the words qualification and character, and it can make some people bristle up, particularly of those of us with a bit of theology under our belt. We'll quickly assert that we've been justified and saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his works and not our works. That Jesus paid all for our sin, all of our debts. And since God no longer holds us accountable for our sin and failures, and he doesn't hold those things against us, it would seem that character qualifications required for pastors, overseers, and deacons is just a legalistic thing. That that's just mere religion. Or worse yet, it's just ethics without salvation. But secondly, character qualifications of leaders and overseers in the church is weird because, well, there really is kind of a deep need or deep felt need in the church today to relate to the leaders of the church. It sounds like this, and I've heard these before. Well, I want a priest or a pastor or a deacon that I can relate to. One, a person who is like me, who likes the things I like does the things I do, has done the kind of work I've done, has the struggles that I have. As I told the first service this morning, listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have leadership that you can relate to. But friends, in doing such, we must be careful that we're not measuring our leadership by our personal standards instead of measuring our leadership by Jesus' standards and his word. I could go on and on about this, but to suffice it to say that, beloved, we must be careful not to downplay the qualifications for overseers and deacons in a church, somehow thinking them to be more like guidelines instead of rules, to quote Pirates of the Caribbean. See, the main point, though, of this portion of Paul's letter written to Timothy is that there should be a series of character uh, tests that the church should run on a person before he or she is to hold the office of deacon. 
say, well, just what is a deacon anyway? Well, the word deacon, diakonos, in the New Testament has a general meaning and a specific meaning. In a general sense, the word deacon occurs 100 times in the New Testament, and it's really associated with serving, or more uh, just concretely, those who are waiting tables. And so really, that word deacon can apply to all of us. Because it's also used to denote persons engaged in administration, people engaged in service, caring for others, ministering, just general ministry in a community. Um, It refers to servanthood, about giving relief and support. And then it's also used in the New Testament to describe the activity of the policemen and soldiers who were in the Roman Empire that day. So that's the general sense. Well, but in the specific official sense, deacons in both Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 and that occurred some 30 years after Pentecost, after the church has been in, uh, in, it's been growing for a while. It shows us where the church had grown, from a, or had grown to where deacons became an elevated official office in the church. And this has roots that go all the way back to Acts chapter 6, where certain qualified persons of character were chosen and appointed to help the apostles with their ministry. And as a result, the apostles came and prayed and laid hands on them in Acts chapter 6 and set them apart for service in the church. So that's the official sense of deacons. But then Paul, what he does in 1 Timothy, he lays out what type of character deacons are to have. First of all, he says that deacons are to be persons of dignity. Well, what does it mean to be a person of dignity? Well, the word dignity denotes that they are to be serious, that they're to be realistic, that they're to be stately in both mind and character, particularly toward all things sacred, including the person's acts And the things of God. To be dignified means that a person is not silly or flippant or always making light of serious matters. We've all known some folks like that, but instead they were to have a respectful attitude of all human beings, of all situations. To be a person of dignity means that they're not skeptics, skeptics being one who doubts. And questions ad infinitum the values, virtues of the world, the church, and others, and all those around them. Person of dignity means that they're not to be cynics. Cynics being those people who can always exalt the defects in others. Always exalt the defects in the church. Yes, they exist. Always exalting the defects in the world and in other people. In his book, Virtuous Leadership, Alexandria Harvard gives this great advice. He says, cynics and skeptics should never be trusted to lead others because they undermine morale and in this way compromise the mission of an organization. To be a person of dignity does not mean, though, that one is stoic, that one is joyless, that one is cold. But rather, to be a person of dignity just means that they quickly come to grips with the seriousness and realism of life that all of us deal with. But Paul also says they're not to be double-tongued. Well, what does that mean? It means that they're to be consistent, that they're to be honest and have integrity in all their speech. Really, at this point, Paul kind of takes a negative turn in in, in his uh, laying out these uh, various qualities and issues really a prohibition here saying, listen, you can't say one thing to one person. Or our deacon cannot be a person who says one thing to one person and then something else to another. Well, why is that? Because, beloved, a person telling different stories to different people will lose everyone's confidence. A person who does that undermines the trust in the community, undermines the health of the church. 
And in worst cases, it can reveal a duplicious and manipulative motive. See, truth-telling and consistent speech are to characterize the life of a deacon. He also says they're not to be addicted to much wine. As the old beer commercial used to say, or I think it was the DUI commercial, um, driving under the influence, know when to say when. I gave this example earlier. You know, deacons and priests, and I discovered this this summer while Father Ben was on sabbatical, you know, we really are on call 365 days a year, 24-7. We don't get the break sometimes of being able to, you know, well, you know, let, let, let them forward this call on to somebody else or I'm not going to deal with this. It really is a, a 30, you know, 365 days, 24-7 thing. It never goes away. And so, friends, could you imagine calling me up with a pastoral emergency and I have to tell you, you know, <laughs> I'll be right over there in a minute, but first I've got to sober up. <laughs> Can't do that. Know when to say when. Not saying can't drink alcohol, just saying no when and say when. All right? But they're also not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Why? Well, money brings power, does it not? We all know that. We see people who have money, eventually they have power. And then also power can bring money. And deacons in the early church would be handling funds, okay? They wouldn't have a nice secure bank account and people who carry money out of here like we do on Sundays and, and carry it to the night drop box. No, they would have to basically oversee and keep like really a kind of a small treasury. And so how tempting would it be to be carrying around all this loot and when you're going around to distribute to widows and to the orphans and to the poor, to be like, well, here's nine for you and one for me. <laughs> nine for you and one for me. As I gave the example this morning, it's like we have candy tax in our house. What is candy tax? Well, when my daughter Kira comes in with a bag of candy, and particularly her favorite thing is Skittles, <laughs> I'm like, come here, you know, give me the bag. And I'm like, you know, I take a few out. She's like, but wait a minute, that's my candy. You can't take it. I said, yes, there's this thing in the world called candy tax. Get used to it because it's going to be with you all your life, this thing called tax. You may as well get warmed up to it now. Of course, she always comes in and she's trying to hide it from me because daddy takes candy tax. But anyway, but Paul also tells, says that one of the other marks of a deacon is that the whole the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. What, that, what does that mean? Well, the easiest way to describe that is that the mystery of faith is exactly the same thing we hold up and say every Sunday here in the Nicene Creed or in the Apostles' Creed. And so, beloved, if one cannot say in full agreement and sincere faith with all the implications and applications of the Nicene Creed, then guess what? They don't need to be a deacon. That's the test of orthodoxy. We talked about this in our life group the other night. You take one of those things out of the creed and the whole faith topples in on itself. But Paul says also, let them be tested. And if beyond reproach, let them serve. And this is what I was talking about, this also being weird in the church, this idea of test or qualifications. You know, I found people in the church who get offended by this. You mean these guys, this woman or this man's got to be tested? Yes. Well, I don't understand. We're all saved by grace. Isn't it mean to test people? Isn't it mean to ask them all those questions? You're really going to ask them about their sex life? Oh, yeah. You're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of it if you go into holy orders, or at least ways the holy orders that I went through. They're going to know everything about you. If that scares you, you may not want to be a deacon. Yes, Paul says, let them be tested, meaning that there is a test. That means that there is a period of time of examination. And yes, that does happen in the Anglican church. 
And then, beloved, after examination, if they meet the character virtues of Timothy and there's nothing in their life that will scandalize the church, then they are to serve as deacons. Well, Paul rolls on. He says, husband of one wife, and that most literally means a one-woman man. In other words, that man's not to have any marks of unfaithfulness in their life. They're to be model, or man or woman, they're to have marks of, or, or not, they're, excuse me, um, they're to be a one-woman man, but essentially it means that they're none of which, a man or a woman, are to have no marks of unfaithfulness in their life. They're to be models of sexual purity, married or not. And then he finishes up, and here's the clincher because my family was in here in the first service. They're to have a well-managed home and be faithful in all things. Beloved, Paul's not saying the home has to be a monastery He's not saying the home of a deacon or a priest has to be a monastery, that the kids have to all be future preachers and missionaries ready to go die on the mission field and be perfect little angels. But Paul's essentially saying that the parents, if a deacon or a deacon parent or a a parent coming in to be a deacon, are to try or are to be about trying to do their best to raise their children up in the ways of the Lord. Generally speaking, they try to live every aspect of their life under the lordship of Christ with spiritual character reflected in the way they manage their home, they discipline their kids, the way they handle their finances, their time, and, of course, their money and leisure time. But then Paul says at the end, he says, there's a reward for deacons doing this, that they get to gain a good understanding for themselves and great confidence in the faith. And so it really is, I was kind of reading through this, I was like, wow, that sounds kind of like he's putting priests and pastors, deacons, and all these guys up on a pedestal. But I mean, really, ask the question, I mean, are, are priests and pastors and deacons supposed to cultivate these characters of virtue in First uh, Timothy 3 in their lives to lift themselves up in status and power in society? I mean, really, it, it, and I've, I've run into this with people too. Is this about overseers and deacons and priests forming a little social spiritual club of spiritual elite to keep all but the worthwhile out? Is that what Paul's doing here? No. The point is this. God, in his love for you and I and his church, has appointed people to organize and administer the practical details and daily living within the church. And that's really what 1 Timothy 3 is about in a nutshell. But these leaders of the church are expected to model a life and a virtue appropriate for all other members. They are supposed to be and speak the gospel. Because, friends, listen, if the, if the leaders in the church just do whatever they want, then it sends a message to the rest of the church in the world that how we live does not really matter And you know, worse yet, poor character, it will not gain a hearing in the culture for the father men of the gospel or the kingdom. And worse yet, poor character causes hurt and pain and disasters in God's church. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 18 exists because of God's love for us. Now, let me ask you a question. This is kind of my shepherd's heart here. What happens when aspiring leaders are not tested, according to 1 Timothy 3. Well, friends, I know growing up firsthand, I saw Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and the financial and moral scandals that that, that happened around them in the 80s, 
and also saw the detrimental impact that a lot of that had on the church. How many of you guys remember that? Any of y'all remember who I'm talking? Yeah. In fact, Fort Mill, South Carolina, where PTL was, I've got friends that are from there that will tell you that is still fallow ground for the gospel because of what happened there. Oh, you're a preacher? (laughs) We're done with you. We've seen what that does in these parts. Their failure in character left a lot of people stranded. Remember I was talking about the boat thing? The work check's done? Yeah, it left a lot of people stranded in their faith. And in words, I mean, and actually I laughed at it, and I I sadly admit that it provided endless, endless comedy material for the likes of Saturday Night Live and other comedy venues to mock and ridicule the church on a weekly basis. To bring it a little closer to us, recently, a very popular high-speed pastor, if you will, in Seattle, Washington, Mark Driscoll, he was dismissed from his post for all sorts of things, ranging from abusive behavior, severe character flaws, and a stream of moral failings that were basically, could be summarized as a man who is an out-of-control bully in God's church. Early in my ministry, personally, I went to several churches in the Baptist world to fill the pulpit vacancies that were often, or excuse me, I went to several churches to fill pulpit vacancies, and often these were due to failures that had occurred in leadership. I heard the hurt in the people's voices. I saw the pain close up that moral failure can bring far and wide. I remember a conversation, particularly one I had with a man who recounted his leadership experience of having to force the resignation of a youth pastor at his church because the youth pastor who was married with two kids was caught having sexual intercourse with one of the young girls in the youth program and later investigation found that he had been sexually abusing his children. This man who was a prominent place in the church said to me with tears in his eyes, he said, I laid awake for two weeks in my bed, couldn't sleep, praying and crying out to God. He said, I'd lay awake and count the popcorn textured dots on the ceiling to pass the time. He said, the hurt, the pain, the fallout. He said, standing up for truth brought a tremendous amount of anger at me and my family and even divided my family as well as my church. And he said, to be honest, Keith, I didn't know if my family or our church would survive it, particularly for him taking a stand to do what was right. Beloved, leadership failures almost sank this man's faith because in a way, the plug was not put in the hole of the boat because of, with this guy. Because you know what's common in almost every one of these situations I just named? And each one, about 95% of the time, had such upcoming leaders in the church been tested and checked according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 by the church prior to them assuming the office, prior to their ordination, or had their peers or those around them spoken up earlier than they did, many times such disasters and black marks on the church could be prevented. Now, beloved, throughout the Bible, when God raises up leaders to serve his people, 
God has not and does not select people based on necessarily on their talent, abilities, or gifting alone. Instead, the word of God tells us that the Lord looks upon the heart. And that, God, and that those that God has chosen to serve him and his people, you know, if you look through the scripture, you actually find they're flawed. They're sinful people too. But they, have all, they all have one thing in common throughout the scripture as well. And that is that they have hearts devoted to God. And you know what? If you go through these qualifications for leaders and listed, or that are listed in Timothy 3, they're really not a checklist. But rather, they really are descriptive in a sense of what a servant, a diakonos, or a, a diakonoi, woman, deacon, looks like whose heart is devoted to God already. A few examples from the Bible, and just to, be, or to, to save time, I'll make these brief. Abraham, you can go back through the, to, to the Bible, was not a perfect man in the Old Testament. In fact, he actually tried to give his wife over to another man. But the Bible says of him, his heart was faithful before God. When Samuel was looking for a successor to King Saul, and by the way, King Saul was a disaster, the, Saul, Saul, uh, the Lord reminded Samuel, he said, the Lord looks at the heart, not at the outside. When God raised up David to be king, the Lord said to Samuel, I have found David, a man after my own heart who will do my will. When David was passing, he said to his son Solomon, he said this, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Beloved, all these leaders' hearts were devoted to God, yet they each, just as each of us, had flaws and failings and were in deep need of the same grace and forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. And friends, just as an application note, though God has placed myself and Father Ben and Jim and Jesus and others into the office of presbyter and deacon here, and though God often uses us to minister to, each, or minister to you all in different ways and shapes and forms, listen, don't, don't mistake our offices or us to be or, or, or us for the perfect presbyter priest or mistaken us for the perfect deacon because the perfect priest and the perfect deacon is Jesus himself. And see, friends, just like the saints I named off in the Old Testament, if you're around one of us long enough, we'll fail you in some regard. We'll say something, most of the time not intentionally, to hurt you We'll overlook something that's important to you, not intentionally to try to hurt anyone. But if you're around us long enough, we will do something to hurt or offend you. Why? Because, beloved, we're not perfect. We're all in need of the same grace and love and forgiveness that Jesus extends to everyone else in the world. There's only one perfect high priest, only one perfect deacon servant. His name is Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, my encouragement for you this morning is that our hearts be devoted fully to Jesus Christ and let each of us be deacons in the general sense and in some of us in the specific sense who can say with Jesus, I am among you as the one who serves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand with me as we recite what